today on Ag News Daily. So aerial imagery uh, was able to provide a high spatial resolution on the spectrum of 20 to 50 centimeters. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here with today's edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I am joined today, fresh off the Pork Congress by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm good, Mike. And actually, I'm going to correct you because the Pork Congress, Iowa's Pork Congress, technically starts tomorrow. They've just got a couple of like pre-Congress events going on that I've gotten to attend. The cool one last night was the Taste of Elegance event. Um, basically they had 12 different chefs from across the state of Iowa. They were all assigned to cook pork belly. That was the, uh, the cut that they got and they each got to basically do with it what they want. And then all the attendees or guests at the event got to sample all 12 different ways of preparing pork belly. There were some really good, really good pieces. What was your favorite? Do you remember what the uh, oh. you know, recipe or, or dish was yeah. with pork belly? Um, so there were two really good ones. One of them was like the the pork belly itself was just like melt in your mouth, like cooked how I feel like pork belly should be cooked, just very, you know, soft and tender. And then it had like a little ravioli noodle on top of it with mm. a pork rind and then some sort of like a garlicky kind of sauce with it. Then the other one I thought was really good was like a barbecue-y um, pork loin or pork belly with polenta and then like a cheese curd corn mix. Oh, kind of yeah. a yeah. I can't I can't even picture that. It was good. I don't know. I think if I'd been asked to be one of the chefs, I would have just cooked up some pork belly, just uh-huh. a, a whole batch of it. And put it in a martini glass and just set that out there. And they could just eat it from a martini glass because anything in a martini glass seems classy. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's nice, right? Mike. Yeah, sure. Nothing says taste of elegance like <laughs> bacon in a booze glass. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of um, like Asian-y slaw type of dishes, which are okay. They're just not my favorite. The other one was a that was pretty good was a pork taco, pork belly taco. Oh, well, yeah. that would be excellent. Yes, it was pretty good. So... Well, that is fun. So you had a fun day yesterday. Yeah. You got to talk with uh, with Dr. Allison Van Annenem, who yep. we've had on the podcast before. Yep. And where will people be able to hear that conversation? Yes. So that is going to be for a piece on This Week in Agribusiness, airing probably next week or the following week. But it was interesting, um, just as we were talking through kind of the future of what that gene editing technology looks like, and I guess just to... Uh, just to back up for folks in case they haven't heard that episode, which I encourage you definitely to go back and listen to it with Dr. Van Enenem. She does some research for UC Davis. She's a geneticist for UC Davis, splits her time between research and extension work, but really has worked to, in essence, develop gene editing technology. So as she compares it, it's like using molecular scissors to cut out or turn off or turn on a specific gene in a genome sequence to, to, th- to uh, you know, start things like being gene resist or, uh, excuse me, disease resistant or having a specific trait in an animal. But uh, she said, interestingly enough, I said, you know, what, what about from a domestic and international perspective? Where do you see the future of protein headed because of technology like this? And she said, well, in the U.S., this type of technology is being ruled as basically a drug. So the FDA is in charge of 
of uh, regulating this, but in other countries, it's being treated just as, you know, basically like a GMO or a genetically modified organism. And she said, so it could be interesting to see here over the next couple of years as other countries have basically free and open access to this technology. Will the U.S. catch up and play catch up? Because we're not really on a level playing field when you look, especially in South American countries, as they're using a lot of this technology in their operations and it's available for commercialization and it's not still in the U.S. because of all the hoops and barriers. Basically, you have to jump through to get it regulated and to get it approved. Well, that is too bad. We don't like to think of ourselves as not being the leader, but right. but we're not in this area, at no. least when it comes to the commercialization aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the regulation aspect of it. So that that was kind of my two cents from that conversation with her. Well, very cool. I had the chance yesterday to go over to the Quad yes, Cities. Actually, right. I was in the Rock Island, Illinois at the Quad Cities Farm Show. And I tell you what, it was quite an event. They had a whole bunch of, a whole mess of dealers set up. And one of the coolest things I saw, I was not able to get an interview with uh, JCB. They had this device there. It was a tele skid steer, a telehandler mm-hmm. combined with a skid steer. Basically, you want to talk about a GMO piece of equipment. This was it. They had taken the the arm and bucket from a telehandler, so you could extend the bucket out, I think it was 15 or 17 feet, and it was a single arm, so it wasn't like a skid steer where you had to climb in over the bucket, you could get into the side like a door, but it was on tracks on the footprint of a skid steer. It was a genius piece of equipment that, man, I wonder why it took so long to hmm. for somebody to roll this thing out. I want one, Delaney Al. <laughs> I am not surprised. Mike is probably too far out of your budget. You don't spend a lot on so. equipment. I think in about 30 years, I'll be able to buy the <laughs> one that was on display at the farm show there yesterday. There you go. Nice. But uh, also had a conversation, a couple of conversations we'll be bringing here over the rest of the week. One with the folks over at Precision Planting. Had a good talk with them about the different things they are rolling out here for this new growing season. And I had a neat talk with a company, with John Hansen from a company called Machio. Have you ever heard of Machio? Uh-uh. Nope. So they are a European company. And they've been in the U.S. about six years, but they're huge over in Europe. And they build specialty tools for agriculture. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I was drawn to their booth because they had a 4 by 4 round baler. So a small round baler. And I thought, oh, you know, who in the heck is going to want, you know, 4 by 4 bales? And we talked about it a little bit. I'll bring you that interview, uh, like I say, later this week. They also have just little – if there's something weird you want to do on your farm – this European mm. company, Machio, makes a thing to do it. It's just very cool that all their stuff's orange, and I like orange equipment. So <laughs> that was part of why I had uh, dropped in over there. Well, neat. We look forward to hearing those conversations. But let's hop on over and talk about the news for today. Of course, yesterday was Martin Luther King Day, so we didn't have the markets open. We didn't see the government. Well, the government isn't open anyways. Um, so uh, what, what do you see going on in the world of news today, Mike? Well, I've got news that is connected to the Brexit deal going on over in Great Britain. So I know a lot of our listeners are fans of ethanol in lots of different forms, both in the fuel form as well as in the bottled variety you can get at your grocery store. And this is about Scotch whiskey. Um, If the EU, if Great Britain leaves the EU without a deal in place, that could make exporting scotch whiskey almost 
impossible. Hmm, interesting. So if you're a big whiskey drinker, if you like those blended scotches, Jameson's and, uh, you know, Glen Mooring, Glen Fittich, Glen Levitt, Glen all Glenn the Glen or Glen, yeah. Yeah, they're all Glen something. I'm not a big scotch guy. But if you are, you had better be stocking up very quickly because they say we have real concerns about the ability of port operators to cope with significant last minute changes to export systems and the risk of disruption at ports is high. This is according to the Scotch Whiskey Association. So I would say, folks, this is something that could hit home for us here in the U.S. about that Brexit negotiation and certainly hit um you know, Scotch and Great British whiskey producers, for sure. Okay, interesting. Well, actually, if we're talking about the EU and Brexit and whatnot going on there, got a little bit of news today. The European Union has taken kind of the next step in the process for negotiating a free trade pact with the U.S. by publishing their directives for the talk. And again, no surprise to any of us, specifically stressed the importance that their trading bloc is adamantly opposed to including agricultural issues. They said they are ready to negotiate, but, quote, the removal of tariffs on industrial goods is important to them. And again, stressed that not interested in bringing agriculture as part of that package deal. Yes, and we still see uh, signs from the U.S. that they do plan on talking about ag issues, kind of whether or not the EU wants to mm-hmm. or not. The American Feed Industry Association, AFIA, has announced that they are very excited to see President Trump's list of negotiation objectives, including discussion of ag issues, importantly, the import of animal food, which, of course, is what the feed industry specializes in. And they say, though, that they want to see the president approach this. They don't say gracefully, but that's what they mean. They want to see this done in stages, cautiously, so we're not just going to roll in, flip them the bird and say, Mm -hmm. you're buying our stuff. You know, they want to finesse it a little bit. Right. Well, speaking of uh, flipping the bird, it kind of sounds like the Trump administration has flipped the bird to the Chinese administration. Just broke today, but the Trump administration has rejected an offer by two Chinese vice ministers to travel to U.S. this week for preparatory talks, trade talks. Those two um, officials were going to be Wang Xiaowen and Liao Men, Mean, Mine, I'm not sure how you pronounce Chinese names, but they were intended to come or had intended to come this week to the U.S. to basically prepare talks and trade talks ahead of the January 30th and 31st meeting. But according to people briefed on the negotiations, U.S. officials canceled this week's face-to-face meeting, basically stating that a lack of progress on, quote, forced technology transfers and uh, potentially far-reaching structural reforms to China's economy. Basically, it sounds like a a kind of a jab here at um, intellectual property and seeing the technology industries not really maybe giving any concessions yet. And another piece of Chinese-related news here reported on Bloomberg just last Friday was kind of some more news that's trickled out now about the... Um, the trade negotiation of the trade meeting that we had. And that was that China has offered to go basically on a six-year buying spree to ramp up imports from the United States to basically help deal or demolish or, or shorten, small in there, the trade surplus. 
So they've said that they're going to increase goods imported from the U.S. over the period of six years here by more than a trillion dollars during that period. However, U.S. officials were not happy by this offer and demanded that the imbalance be cleared in the next two years and said that this wasn't something they found, I guess, appetizing or or appealing to them and stressed again that this just wasn't a timeline that was fast enough for President Trump. And we've definitely seen the soybean markets reacting to this news today, down seven and a half in the March contract and down five and a half in the November contract. Mike, I don't know if you've seen anything come across the wires on on either of these two issues today. Yeah, I hadn't seen the, uh, the rejection of the Chinese delegation quite as of yet. It does sound like the late January talks are still going to happen. We just won't have the the preparatory team mm-hmm. in place is is the way I interpreted that uh, that news. Yes. But the, the interesting thing is, you know, you listen to the the potential Chinese buying spree. You know, they wanted to spread it out over six years. The President Trump said, no, 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 no. We need it in two years. Well, what happens in just shy of two years? Um. A new election. Absolutely. 2020. And I'm sure that's what President Trump is uh, basing his guidelines Mm -hmm. on. But the bigger issue to me is that when these tariffs were put in place, there was a whole list of demands that we were going to put on China. We wanted Uh them to stop stealing technology. We wanted them to do all of these things. And it sounds like they're coming back and saying, yeah, we're not going to do any of that stuff, but we'll buy more U.S. goods, which Mm -hmm. kind of sweep it under the rug, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So not not terribly shocked. That's what they're trying to do. But I guess we'll see what ends up coming from all of these negotiations. Yes, we most certainly will. Well, Ling, you mentioned market prices there. Are we ready to dive into the markets or do you have any other news for us today? I do have one other piece of news as we're talking about negotiations, and that's negotiations going on in Washington, D.C. this week. We're now at day 32 of the partial government shutdown. And today is also the last of the three days that FSA offices will be open around the country. But it appears there's still really no shutdown in sight. Although Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he's going to force a vote later this week to vote on President Trump's proposal to basically trade legal status for DREAMers for $5.7 billion in a border wall funding And the president's proposal will be combined with a package of the disaster aid and a series of fiscal 2019 funding bills for the USDA and other other departments that are currently shut down. And so the um, Senate version would also authorize $3 billion in disaster aid, which was similar to what the House presented. But however, remember, if you uh, think back to last week, the House also had kind of a shut down or a move through to reopen the government and just basically said, we're not going to address President Trump's wall or funding the wall. So it sounds like the the Senate is going to push something through this week, but it's going to be tied to border funding. So I'm doubting it's going to go through in the House. More discussions ahead. It sounds as though the shutdown shall continue, Yes, at least for the foreseeable future. Yep, it does sound like that, unfortunately. Well, the MLK market shutdown from yesterday has ended. Martin Luther King Day, of course, is what we were remembering yesterday. The markets are open today in Delaney. Let's jump in and see where these prices closed for the day. What do you say? Let's do it, Mike. 
We will do that. And folks, our marks are brought to us by our friends at Zaner. Remember, the Zaner Group can help you manage your marketing risk, so give them a shout. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or find them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. As Delaney mentioned, we saw a little bit of a pullback today in the grains, March corn down two and three quarter cents at 379 even the may contract down two and three quarters as well to finish at 387 and a quarter in soybeans the march contract down seven and a half cents at 909 and a quarter the may down seven and a quarter to close at 922 and three quarters wheat saw a little bit of upside chicago march up three and a half cents at 521 and a quarter the may contract up three and a half to finish at 527 even jumping over to the world of livestock weakness today in the cattle complex the feb February contract down a dollar forty in live cattle at one twenty five twelve fifty. The April down a dollar thirty to finish at one twenty six oh seven fifty. In feeder cattle, the March contract was down a dollar thirty two fifty at one forty one fifty. The April down a dollar forty five finished at one forty two ninety five. And mixed trade in lean hogs with the February contract up twenty five cents at sixty one forty seven fifty. The April down seventeen and a half to close at sixty six ten. Jumping over to the world of dairy. In Class 3 milk, the January contract was unchanged on the day at $13.99. February, down $0.09 to finish at $14.13. Today, of course, is Hashtag Tech Tuesday, and we have a conversation with Series Imaging, Jenna Rodriguez. We are catching up with Jenna Rodriguez, who is kind of a jack-of-all-trades for Series Imagery. Jenna, take us through the 10,000-foot view of what you guys do at Series yeah, so we essentially capture imagery for growers and help them to read and understand what their images are saying about what's going on on their farm. Um, and so essentially from a, a 10,000 foot perspective, um, we're trying to provide proactive imagery. So not just doing NDVI, not just calculating your normalized difference vegetation index um, that's not as specific to the real problem, what's going on in your field, but we want to provide imagery that's specific to water issues, specific to fertilizer issues and soil issues, um, so that you can get in front of the problem um, and, and be proactive about uh, treating it. Now, Jenna, capturing imagery, of course, is a huge field. There's satellites, there's drones, there's low-flying aircraft. Tell us a little bit about how you guys capture the imagery to begin with. Yeah, that's a, a really good question because we um, we are platform agnostic, and that term gets thrown around a lot, and it's easy to overlook, but we're really not concerned about the platform itself, um, and we did, in fact, start out as a drone company, actually, and we moved over to manned, air, manned aircraft um, because we were more focused on, you know, the data collection, and, and we wanted to collect clean data, um, not contaminated by atmospheric effects um, like aerosol, water vapor, that sort of thing. Um, so aerial imagery uh, was able to provide a high spatial resolution on the spectrum of 20 to 50 centimeters, um, but also give us um, a lot more flexibility on when we were capturing that data too, because of course, you know, with, with agriculture, you're dealing with lots of different commodities that have different growing times and milestones that can also vary by region. And so, um, Aircraft let us collect that high um, high spatial resolution and high spectral resolution while also being flexible and nimble for um, different agricultural crops. 
Yeah, and I think that segues nicely into kind of my next question, Jenna. On your website, you have, um, you say you can you can do anything from nuts to corn. That's kind of a, a yep. diverse range of crops that you're working on. Normally, when we talk to people within the precision ag or the tech space, they're focusing primarily on one kind of niche thing, whether it's corn and soybeans or vegetables or fruits or whatever. How have you guys been able to in capture technology that allows you to use it across all of those different areas. Yeah, so so just kind of deferring back to my last um, last point in with aerial with that aerial platform. Um, you know, we work with a lot of different crops. We work with forage crops and perennials and vines, and they all and across different regions: Midwest, California, Australia, Hawaii, even, and they all have vastly different needs. And even some growers based on their sizes. Some of your 100-acre growers will have very different needs and timing of flight versus a 1,000 or 30,000-acre grower. And so I think that one of the, the big pieces to the puzzle that we've found is, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all for commodities and crop sizes and regions. So, you know, with corn, you know, we're working with growers um, that might only need four flights or they might need eight flights all weekly at a very high frequency. Whereas we might also be working with some um, salmon crops that that want eight flights, but not at a high frequency that are, you know, two times a week or weekly, but maybe spaced out um, every two weeks, every three weeks. So, you know, with with our pilot, we contract our pilots out uh, and they're all located across the, the country. And those pilots are essentially flying weekly. So a grower can just pick their weeks that they want flown. Um, and we even have growers that are farming, you know, different crops. So they could have their corn being flown at one time of the year and their walnuts being flown at a different time of the year. So um, that's, that's really how we've been able to, to cater to those different crop types um, based on that, that remote sensing platform. Well, now let's talk a little bit about what the sensors are doing. What all can you guys see once you get that pilot up in the air, you get that aircraft up on whatever schedule the grower needs, what kind of content or data should the grower expect to have returned? Yep, uh, that's a great question. So we are our wheelhouse products are we do NDVI, which is the Normalized Difference Vegetation Index, um, which has been around for a a long time and a a lot of growers uh, today are, are very custom with using that if they've been using remote sensing. Um, we also have different lenses that capture different wavelengths of light beyond just NDVI. So also looking at chlorophyll content. And um, we also detect water stress. And we, we do provide just raw thermal data to our customers as well that by detecting cool areas that are, have like soil that's gotten wet, we can detect leaks really clearly um, with high spatial resolution thermal data. Um, so again, with with different growers and different crop types and different um, different sized uh, growers, they all have different needs. So um, for areas of the country that are very very focused on only putting the amount of water into the root zone and not a drop more and don't want to don't can't afford to lose water to deep percolation um they will typically be using water stress um very often uh, if that's their main goal whereas uh, other growers if they're very much focused on fertilizer management and uh, being you know precision application for for fertilizer purposes um they'll be using chlorophyll uh, more frequently um, and then with NDVI, that's 
that's still a very useful index and it's really good about providing a kind of your whole report card at the end of the season showing that if you got in front of those problems if you're managing your water and your your fertilizer and resources uniformly you'll have a, a very uniform you know ndvi or a very uniform canopy at the end of the season Jenna, I think really the meat and potatoes of um, what we wanted to talk to you about was this study that was released just uh, just last week or two weeks ago, I guess now. A remote sensing found successful for predicting nitrogen requirements in rice. Walk us through what sparked this research by series. Yeah, um, so one of my favorite things, I, I came on the series about three years ago and what really sold me on what this company is doing is that we started out with the University of California Cooperative Extension, um, and we don't roll out products until we've got a pretty rigorous and robust um, validation of what we're, or what we're providing in the imagery. And so, for example, with our water stress and chlorophyll um, in tree nut crops, we were working uh, very uh, rigorously with the University of California for several years. Um, by validating it with ground data that they were collecting. And essentially that's what we were doing with rice. Um, the, the study went on for three years, I believe. And um, the, there were several uh, percent nitrogen samples collected to correlate to um, the normalized difference red edge index. And the, uh, the results were pretty exciting with an R squared, so a correlation of about 0.92. So very strong correlation between what was going on on the ground um, to what we were seeing in the imagery. Can I can I ask really quick for those listeners that are not science savvy, um, what is the R squared coefficient? Yeah, the R squared coefficient basically just showing the um, with a ninety two percent confidence of what was going on on the ground um, was what we were seeing per pixel in each image. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm going to back up here for a second because I guess Mike and I are from Iowa. Um, We uh, talk with a lot of corn and soybean growers who, of course, need nitrogen. But when you look at rice production, is is nitrogen obviously a key nutrient that is needed there as well? Uh, Nitrogen applications in rice in California or in Australia? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so so one of the one of the things that we're shooting for with our imagery is uniform uniform farming, um, and so one of the one of the goals with the study was to find the right time for the imagery to um, take place for top dressing applications of nitrogen, um, and so one of the one of the problems is that when growers would go out and take a sample, um, one spot sample may not be representative of what's actually going on in the field. So when a grower would go out and take their nitrogen samples, you know, with, without an image, you are really just kind of driving around and going off of, you know, what you're seeing on the ground floor. And those, just like if you're taking um, a couple different soil moisture sensors out through a field, um, those soil moisture sensors might not be giving you um, data that's representative of the whole field. And so this is kind of the same thing with rice is taking those nitrogen samples and it may not be representative of that entire field. So if you take a sample um, that just happens to be a very low nitrogen spot, 
in the field, but the rest of the area is fairly high, you could be over applying your nitrogen, um, you know, using more resources and spending more money than you really need to do. And so one of the really exciting things about this is that with this imagery, you can take samples that are more representative of the field um, and are more precise to application. So you can use, you won't be over applying if you don't need to. And that, of course, times right in with the four R's we talk about all the time when we're looking at precision planting. And I, I want to ask you, one of those, of course, is the right time. When we're talking top dress, we're talking um, a, uh, important nitrogen applications or, or any application, really. Timing is everything. How long from when the flight goes over to take the images until the grower has data in hand that they can use to act on? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're asking for the turnaround time between when the when the plane is overhead and uh, to when it's in the hands of the growers? Absolutely, yeah. Yep, yep. So we average a 24-hour turnaround time, and we're actually uh, working very hard in this off-season, quote-unquote, uh, to reduce it um, lower than 24 hours. Huh, interesting. So, Jenna, I guess one of the big questions that maybe we haven't addressed yet is how does uh, the price work for this? Am I paying... Uh, per flyover session? Am I paying a package deal? How do I, if I'm a grower, get access to this technology? Yeah, so our, our pricing is very flexible by packages. And so it's not like, you know, you sign up and you have to take every single flight that our pilots are flying for the season. Um, we usually do four, six, eight flights. Some of our growers do weekly if that, uh, if that fits in with their management needs. Um, but usually most of our growers are on that four to eight flight schedule. Um, and like I said earlier, some of our growers, you know, if they have different crops go, uh, growing at different times, you know, their forage crops or um, their rice, their corn, they might only want to fly that four times or six times in the year. Um, but if they have perennial crops or if they have an evergreen crop, like olives, for example, that's growing year round, um, they might want to fly uh, six to eight times during the year and they can space that out as needed. Jenna, tell us if growers are listening, they're interested, they want to try some of this this next growing season, how should they go about getting more information? Yeah, they um, they can reach out um, going to our website at seriesimaging.net, uh, and there's content uh, contact information on our website. Um, and they can also uh, feel free to email me directly, Jenna Rodriguez at jrodriguez at seriesimaging.net. Fantastic. And listeners, that is series as in the goddess of grain, C-E-R-E-S imaging. And uh, Jenna, really thank you for taking the time to talk to us and to explain what you guys have been up to over there. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for all of your great questions. All right. Well, again, a big thank you to Jenna Rodriguez. Interesting stuff that they're doing there, Mike, isn't it? It is. It's very cool. You know, imaging has certainly gotten a, a lot of press here over the past several years. There are mm -hmm. a lot of companies making great strides in there, and it's going to be interesting to see where growers end up putting their dollars yes. um, in this new source of technology, yeah, new, new source of data, I right. should say. Right, especially when you look at balance sheets tightening here probably over the next year to two years. I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, what growers pick and choose as kind of the, the important or the essentials for their operations. Right. What has that all-important ROI that'll keep both the farmer and the banker happy? That's right. Well, Mike, if folks are not happy or are happy with the coverage Ag News Daily is providing, where can they uh, give us a message? Where can they give us a shout out? 
They should lodge any complaints they have with Delaney Howell. They can do that on her Twitter. I forget what that is. But any compliments, they can direct at Ag News Daily on uh, Facebook and on Twitter. Just search for us. We'll pop up there. Of course, we want to hear from all of our listeners, whatever their opinions are. I would encourage all of you, if you do subscribe to this service on iTunes, to log in, leave a review there, pro or con, whatever your Whatever your heart desires, that just helps new people new people find the podcast. And uh, otherwise, you can visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.